All right, welcome back to the podcast on everything. I'm your host, Dan Berlin, and today I have with me Jacob Amidi, who is a very fascinating individual, and I'm very excited he is on the podcast. He knows so many different things, and he plays so many different instruments that to have him on the podcast explaining what he did, how he got involved into it, and then just maybe some other topics that we just delve into because his mind is everywhere, and that is a great thing because I learned so much when he just blurts out at work. So thank you for that, Jacob. We're going to get into what he's going to talk about today, which is primarily music. He is a part of the Baltimore Mandolin Orchestra and the Charm City Bronze in which he rings bass handbells, and he'll get into all of that. But first, let's start to like how this all began. Well, uh, I guess that's a way of asking the question, how did I get into music in general, since that's the topic we were just discussing. Probably the first memory that I have concerning music, concerning particularly my being interested or, or, or otherwise fascinated or compelled by some piece of music that I heard, was I remember being five years old, sitting on my couch, uh, and the radio was on in the next room, um, and a piece was playing, uh, which was clearly, uh, you know, retrospectively, I can say that it was recorded a very long time ago, and it was a large choir with with instrumentation. But it was very diff- difficult for me as a as a five or six year old to d- differentiate between the choir and instruments. About 15 years after the fact, I I found that same recording, which had been playing on NPR in oh, the year I'm 22 years old, so that was in uh, 2002 or 2003. Um, which was the Jaeger Corps, which the Hunter's Chorus from a, an opera, which was written by uh, uh, Weber in, uh, let's say, 1820. I remember knowing that that piece was something that my grandfather listened to. Now, I don't know how all of those pieces of information uh, got put together in my head. It might be something along the lines of a made-up memory in which all those things happened over the course <laughs> of the same day or the same week. You know, my grandfather might have uh, visited... But at the time, when I was five or six, I knew that my grandfather listened to that piece, uh, and I know that that memory has something to do with the couch in my, in my family room. So you can imagine, you know, 15 years later, I, I, I hadn't had that memory of that memory for probably eight years at that point, and then I realized, oh, that's one of the earliest musical uh, memories that I have. Um, how I got started in playing music was everyone who was supposed to pick an instrument, you know, fifth grade. I chose the violin. I don't exactly know why that was the instrument that I chose um, we got to play a few in fourth grade, just kind of try our hands at them, and violin, I think, was the was the one that suited my fancy. I couldn't make a sound of the, the clarinet, and the trumpet, I thought, was too, um, uh, uh, well, similarly too difficult. Um, my older brother plays the clarinet, guitar, and uh, saxophone, so he's also a multi-instrumentalist. My younger brother played uh, percussion from the age of seven, so violin was my first instrument. I took lessons, uh, formal lessons, until the age of 18, so 10 to 18, uh, and that's the only instrument that I ever took formal lessons in. Around freshman year of high school, I picked up the mandolin, which is tuned in the same way as a, as a violin. Um, the only prominent difference being that it has frets, so it's much easier to get notes in the right intonation. Started concentrating on that seriously uh, the first year of college, so that's mandolin, violin. Oregon, I started playing... Um, I'm not sure... Actually, I know why, because I have a friend who, who has a Hammond organ which uh, playing that instrument is like riding a freight train. Um, so that was an extremely compelling musical experience. So I got my first organ in 11th grade, got my second organ in freshman year of uh, college, got my third organ, sophomore year, or fourth, third and fourth organ, sophomore year of college, fifth organ, 
junior year of college, and my sixth and final Oregon I got in the summer after I graduated from Johns Hopkins University in the summer of 2018, last year. Uh, so that's six organs. All right. Um, auto harp, I started playing uh, in January of that year, 2018. So that's uh, mandolin, violin, organ, auto harp. Uh, recorder, I've had a soprano recorder for a long time. Everyone plays a soprano recorder in elementary school, or most everyone, at least if you're paying attention. And I never kind of fell out of that. Um, I had one that I would play around with a lot, and then I got an alto, and then I got a tenor, and then I got a bass. So that's soprano, alto, tenor, bass, all wooden except for the soprano. Um, and I would noodle around that. So, so that's mandolin, violin, organ, auto harp, uh, and recorder. So that's five. Bass handbells. Now, now that's an interesting one. I, I was playing violin in Baltimore for the Cathedral of the Incarnation. Uh, I was going to a rehearsal after service one day, and Ken uh, was playing a postlude. And after the postlude stopped, I had gone up to the organ loft to sit next to the actual instrument and, and listen to it. After the postlude stopped, um, a magnificent timbre uh, uh, came across my ears. I thought that it might have been an organ stop, but it couldn't have been because the notes were decaying too rapidly. So I went down to the to the cathedral itself, and, and I went in, um, and there were a bunch of people ringing bells. There were about a dozen people ringing all sizes of bells, from from ones the size of your thumb to uh, uh, probably the size of a dinner plate, or at least with the with the diameter of a dinner plate. So I got talking to the conductor of that ensemble. Um, which happened to be Charm City Bronze, and I uh, uh, and I joined. So that was uh, January of 2018. I played with them until June, and then I started again this January. And our final um, uh, final concert is actually this coming Saturday. Uh, we'll be playing at Ashland Presbyterian Church. So let's see. That's bass, handbells, mandolin, violin, organ, auto harp, reed organ, uh, uh, or reed organ rather, organ uh, recorder. Uh, didgeridoo, I don't know, uh, didgeridoo <laughs> just somehow got thrown in there at some point, and I can circular breathe, so it's, so it's no trouble. Let's see, the accordion, I just started playing accordion, actually, in uh, uh, on Earth Day of this year, April 22nd. Um, and I started playing accordion because my father, who is the father of myself and my two brothers, who are all multi-instrumentalists, plays one instrument. He plays accordion, uh, and he has a magnificent German instrument manufactured in the 60s. I've never heard another accordion that sounded quite like his. Uh, it's like a miniature, you know, cathedral organ. Um, so I picked that up because I had been going to a few meetings of the Maryland Accordion Club, which is a group of uh, uh, ex-professionals or current professionals in accordion. I think the oldest member is in his late 80s, um, and, and he's youngest, also the president. Oh, yeah, the youngest is me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, my little brother, who also yeah. plays accordion, would go sometimes, and he's 18. Okay. So, so I guess you could say that the youngest member is my, my younger sibling. Um, but yeah, and I, and I picked it up, and in the course of two weeks, I, um, or in the course of 12 days, rather, I, I learned the piece that my father had previously butchered um, at, the, at the previous meeting. And I learned it to the extent that I was, I was going to play it at, at the next meeting, but uh, uh, that meeting was canceled. And then at the meeting following that, my dad had expressed some degree of consternation in the direction of my one-upping him. So... <laughs> Uh, so I did not play accordion at that, but uh, perhaps at the last meeting in, in September before I uh, ship off, uh, uh, I will I will bedazzle the crowd with my accordion skills. <laughs> yeah. So I think that covers all the instruments. That is a ton. Yeah, yeah that's a bunch of them. <laughs> yeah, and we can we can start breaking down a few more because you you said something I'm like oh man I have like a thousand questions that delve into that. When you started at five years old, remembering that I couldn't tell you the first music I yeah, yeah. I remember. Um, when I was in elementary school, I remember why I didn't get in any, into any instruments, and that was because my music teacher 
destroyed me publicly in front of everybody. Oh, that's sad. That's yeah. not good, yeah. And I always That's just an educational yeah. failure right there. <laughs> not on your part, but on theirs. Yeah, and then after that, I was like, never again. Screw that. How, how, um, what, what was the, what, so, what's the story? So what we did is I went to a, a city school, and they just threw like 30 people in a, in a class, and mm-hmm. you got a music, music teacher. And to say that you're present, you would say your name, but you'd have to sing it in like operas. And I'd butcher it. I'd be like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> or however I sounded as, a, as a, like an yeah, eight-year-old. Yeah. And then eventually you started taking the ones that weren't musically inclined with their voices and put them in a corner. And then they reading them out. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not going, how musical <laughs> education should, should go. Yeah. Those people, you shouldn't, you shouldn't put, just put them yeah. in a quarter. You should make them be percussionists. That's yeah. how you do it. They eventually started giving us like triangles and basic stuff, and then all of us were like, when you could choose things, we're like, all right, we're gonna choose to not do this class and do something else, and that was the extent of it until I got to middle school, and then I wanted to be a drummer, and everyone wanted to be a drummer because yeah. it was it was doing all the, like the big drummers, um, like the Blink 182s, all of those big guys like drumming. You're like, oh, they're so badass. They're well, Blink 182, <laughs> you're really dating yourself. Yeah, I know. Well, when you said what your age was and when you, uh, like 2002, I was like, all right, well, I'm almost... I can remember the transition from 2001 to 2002. <laughs> Earliest year transition that I can remember, like the, the New Year days, is, is I think 2004 to 2005. <laughs> you started saying that. I think I, I had a babysitter for that. <laughs> I could have been your babysitter back then right at my, my age. Yeah, so I ever wanted to be a drummer, and then I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'll just do the other things. So it's like really incredible to like talk to a person that has done so many instruments because my mind doesn't go like that i mean i love music i can listen to it but the fact that like you can probably break down what instrument is being played in a song yeah or or, is, or an ensemble of instruments yeah. to be able to be able to identify them um well well it's it's kind of queer because all my brothers are are musically inclined um we all listen to very different music as well you know i'm 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 very much concentrating on the on the Baroque era and, and Renaissance uh, choral music more so than anything else. You know, the furthest into, um, into kind of the classical music tradition that I'll, I'll delve is maybe, you know, Beethoven, um, and that's very rare. And, and then the flip side of that for me is, is, is I, I like to listen to a lot of uh, early American folk music, so things that were recorded, not, not only composed or, or performed, but recorded between the 1910s and, and the early 40s. And that all, that all happened to me in a, in the, over the course of a semester. Um, at college, uh, and I don't know exactly what what precipitated that either. Um, my older brother is a DJ in in Baltimore. He he's really into like funk and soul and like electronic music, but not like mainstream electronic music. I'm not really I don't really know. And and my younger brother is into ragtime and, and early jazz. So so we're all following very different musical trends. My dad is an eclectic, but um, it, when it comes to music, he has a record collection of probably three thousand, a CD collection, even more, and even more tapes than that. But I don't I don't remember. Um, my father being particularly adamant about about us learning musical instruments or us listening to a lot of music, you know, he did he did play some part in that. You know, if, if uh, he brought, he would bring up CDs for us from time to time if we expressed any interest in any direction of music. Because so, when I say he's an eclectic, a lot of people will say, you know, oh, I listen to a lot of different music. He listens to a lot of different music and he gets into it. That's that's the real thing. You know, it's one thing to to have some recordings that you revisit from time to time. Uh, but it's another to really delve into the background of those recordings and related recordings and then things that re- are related to that. That's really how you grow taste and uh, and, and kind of you know, culture yourself in that in that regard. Yeah. Now, do you think it's like you think it's more nature or nurture? Because 
I can tell you, one person <laughs> in my family that played an instrument it was my brother who played the drums. <laughs> and, he, and he played them recreationally. And then you have your family, and everyone is, you know, like that. Well, I'm, I'm glad so. <laughs> that you used that. Um, I, I'm glad that you presented that false dichotomy, nature versus nurture, because that I, I'm, I, I told myself that I wasn't really going to delve into my own academic background, but it seems as though you forced my hand. <laughs> um, so so I, I studied behavioral biology and cognitive science at Johns Hopkins University. That's two majors. Um, behavioral biology focuses more so on on the evolution of behavior. Um, what, what you know, proximate versus ultimate, or proximate and ultimate questions concerning the contribution of an animal's, you know, life history and and evolutionary history of the species that the animal happens to be, belong to towards its behaviors, towards its dispositions, towards you know the the operation of its being in the environment that it happens to occupy. Nature versus nurture is thrown around a lot um, in in the sphere of layman, not so much in the sphere of academic. And, and here's why: it's 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 a wrong the wrong question to be asked. You can never divide it into saying, oh, it's it's either nature or it's either nurture. And what's more, you can never really say, oh, it's more nature than nurture, um, without qualifying that statement to a preposterous degree. So. Um, if you have an animal who, who does something, you know, say a, a fixed action pattern that you can identify a part of its nervous system which is particularly dedicated to performing this one task. So if you zap that part of its nervous system out, it's not going to do that anymore. Uh, so say imprinting, you know, geese will affix themselves to essentially the first moving object that they see um, in their environment. And if that moving object goes one direction, it'll, they'll follow. That's imprinting for you. That can be said to be as close to you know nature, as close to a, an instinct or a, or an essential drive as as anything, because that's something that, ha that requires pretty much no environmental experience. Um, on the other side of that, things like uh, oh I don't know, playing musical instruments for one. You know we're not engineered to play musical instruments. There's no aspect of our evolutionary his history that really says hey playing musical instruments is something that you should do in order to um, you know acquire a mate or or survive or anything like that. So that may be on the other side of the spectrum. And there are arguments that you can put forth, some of which have some value, saying why that's not the case, why it might indeed be the case that playing musical instruments is something that you could use to attract a mate and why you know we've been playing musical instruments for long enough a time. I think the earliest bone flute that was discovered is something like 50,000 years old. I don't know that for sure, but I know that one was discovered at least that uh, amount of time ago. Um, you might be able to argue, construe an argument along those lines. So, you, you could, I feel like you could also make like a slight argument for like the people that bonfires that play the music to get the girls. Oh yeah, <laughs> well, 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 no, that's the case. But, I mean, yeah, that's like yeah. sexual selection. So why yeah. is it that you know, um, uh, uh, more than nine times out of ten, if you pick any any ten com great composers mm -hmm. who are you know well known, or let's say Wikipedia pages um, uh, who, who have some degree of no notability, why more than nine out of ten, ten of them are male? You can make the argument that males have a particular disposition in their nervous system to, to uh, follow along those lines for whatever reason, you know, be that sexual selection or their own stupidity. Because, um, I mean, that's, that's one of the things, you know, for a time in college I would play, I would play mandolin and organ for more than three hours a day. It, I would qualify that as an addiction. Um, so why? why? What about me makes me, you know, have an addictive personality as regards instruments? You know, is it the fact that my nervous system was organized in a particular way from birth, or is it because of the fact that I kind of fell down into that habit and pursued that track to the point where you could say, yeah, this is pretty pathological? So that's why you need a lot of qualifications when you invoke either, either nature or nurture or any of the um, you know, terms related to those. Uh, I forget what the original uh, formulation of that question was. So. <laughs> I was looking at your family compared to my family and how many instruments you guys play, and then... My family, 
It's one. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a recreational instrument. Well, all, all of the in- so, fa- instruments yeah. that, that I play, or I play them recreationally. You know, I'm not I'm not going to yeah. be paid to play any of the instruments. I would love to. I'm, I would love to busk or something like like that. And maybe I'll have an opportunity to do that in the future. But um, for the time being, I'm perfectly happy doing what I'm doing. Yeah. So the question was more based on, like along the lines of like, do you think it like goes down generations, or do you think it was just like your dad well, just playing it all the time? Well, that's kind a, of like that pushing you into question. into music. Well, I, I made the remark yeah. that my, my dad yeah. didn't necessarily. There wasn't really any conscious yeah. effort on his part. Uh, if any, it was unconscious and 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 really. Yeah. Well, let's take like Bach's family. I'm really all about Jan Sebastian Bach. Um, you know, he he came from a very very long line of musicians and and composers. To the point where you know you can he he did a he did a genealogical survey of his own in the in the 1730s so he was around around 40 or 50 by then um, he could he can trace his family back to a, a musician known as Weitbach uh, who was alive I think in the latter part of the 1500s um, and Weitbach played the cittern which is like a guitar um, and he played it uh, not in a formal setting uh, I don't know if he was a composer or not but he was a miller that was his that was his profession and he would play it at the mill. Um, and that's what we know about Weitbach. But but after him, we, you have generations and generations of siblings, cousins, um, aunts, uncles, all of whom play instruments. Uh, I think you only have to go back a couple generations to get you know a, a town piper and a qu- choir master. Uh, Bach's own father was a violinist, but he you know came from a great tradition within the family. You know they would have family gatherings, and of course they would they would all bring their instruments and they all, would all sing their compositions. So, so there's two factors here. There's the the fact that he's born into this tradition, uh, this familial tradition. So, of course, he's going to have some formative experiences that that drive him uh, into you know the playing and composing of music. Um, but also, maybe there's some some aspect of the you know general organization of the nervous system of those family members with the last name Bach um, uh, that lead them lead them to be exceptional composers. Um, and Bach, of course, is, was the most exceptional, but uh, I mean, and his, his children. He had, Bach had twenty children, ten of whom survived to adulthood. Five of whom were were uh, renowned composers, and they were all they were all you know students of Bach's. None of them really pursued the same musical tradition as Bach himself, because by by the time of his own death, um, Bach's uh, compositions were largely ignored. There had been a gross transition um, from Baroque music to what's called Galant music, which is essentially the transition between Baroque music, which is very ornate, very mathematical, very precise, um, uh, huge emphasis on counterpoint and formal figurations of, you know, bass versus melody lines versus harmony lines to classical music, classical with a lowercase c or with an uppercase c, I'm not sure on the convention actually, uh, which is like Mozart. So, so more, a lot more of an emphasis on melody, a lot more of an emphasis on, Arguably, instrumentation things that are a little bit more popularly construed than than the the mathematical nature of Baroque music. So Bach's own sons, you know, if Bach had lived for another twenty years, he would probably have been grossed out by the musical traditions that followed his own. So, so I mean, Bach is an interesting example, and 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 I don't know if any of his sons' sons were composers or if their sons. Yeah, I wonder um, when that tradition like ended. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially because there was a because Bach's family um, largely composed within the same conventions. They were all um, born into the late Renaissance and and Baroque eras. Uh, Bach, of course, brought Baroque tradition to kind of a culmination, a logical culmination. He was arguably the last organist of the uh, uh, the North German uh, organ school, which which started with Jan Peterson Sveling, which was who was actually uh, Dutch, Um, and I think he was alive around the time of. uh, 
William Byrd, so probably died around 1620, 1630, which is 100 years before Bach's time. I, I, wrote, I took one class, one elective on music in college, and that was Introduction to Western Classical Music, and it was a joke. I, I already knew a lot of stupid composer facts, but that cla- class was basic stupid composer facts. <laughs> it was essentially following the textbook. And what's more, it was taught by um, the, the head of the Peabody Choral Department. So Johns Hopkins and Peabody have you know, a relationship. Johns Hopkins is, is kind of the overarching umbrella under which Peabody falls. I think they bought them out in like the 70s. But you know, that, that guy had, had, a, had a rich background of, of musicology. He knew, knew a lot of stuff, so I thought it was pretty disappointing. I was very disappointed that he just followed the textbook uh, and made us memorize things, rather than really going into what makes classical music classical music, more so what, what makes music music. Um, you know, I said that I said that the latest that I'll go really is the is is the time of Beethoven. So so maybe 1830 is when I when I really stop. There are a couple recordings that I continuously revisit, revisit um, from composers afterwards. Classical music essentially fell on its own sword, so to speak, in the in the 1940s with the advent of of uh, kind of post serialism and John Cage. So John Cage is a very interesting guy. He. Uh, uh, he essentially said, you know, sound is music. There's no division between those things. Whereas even Bach, who is, you know, loads ahead of his time, even if you said, oh, all sound is music, you know, my drumming on the table with my fingers is, is music, Bach would say, no, it's not. You know, there's no melody, there's no harmony, there's no counterpoint, there's nothing. John Cage would uh, disagree, and a lot of his compositions, most of his compositions, arguably all of his compositions, reflect the, his uh, his philosophy along those lines, which is a beautiful philosophy, you know. And I and I would say that I at least formally subscribe to that, but um, I don't think that it's a very uh, uh, productive convention to write music by because it really opens the door for a lot of uh, uh, a lot of nonsense. So you know, and their their classical music is still a still a tradition, and there are still people who, who are writing classical music. But there's no Bach alive today. There's no one who can sit down and and improvise a three part fugue. That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> I wrote a few more things down, which we'll get into. And now it was like a spider web. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I, I, well, yeah. I, one thing that fine. I didn't tell myself was that I would fall. You know, keep yeah. from falling into. Tangents. It's completely fine. I, I love when things are organic. Oh, that's um, kind of the point. I've always heard if you listen to classical music, it makes you study more and stuff like that. Do you oh, believe that's in that philosophy? That? No, that's nonsense. <laughs> no. I mean, my studying tactics were essentially developed in, in late high school, and I didn't really listen to music when I was doing that. Um, but in college, I, I did listen to a lot of music when I would be studying and off. The, the problem is, if you're only listening to music when you're studying, then you're essentially you, you essentially condition yourself to to have a particular association between listening to music and studying, which might work out for some people, but I don't think that that would work out for me. I was essentially listening to music all the time. Um, I would request um, request CDs from uh, Peabody and interlibrary loans, uh, probably an average of like 15 or 20 CDs every week. Um, and I would listen to them. Uh, I think I got through the entirety of uh, John Elliott Gardner's interpretations of Bach cantatas in the first couple months of, of being at Hopkins, which is a feat. That's about, I don't know how many hours of music it is, but it's about 200 cantatas, um, each of which, maybe an average of 25 minutes apiece. Mm-hmm. So you can do the calculations for yeah. yourself. And um, that'd be interesting to do the calculations of how long it took him to make those. Oh, yeah, well, well yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and retrospectively, you know, that was, yeah. that was garbage. I shouldn't have listened to that, you know, trash music because John Elliott <laughs> Gardner is a, is a weasel. Um, and we can get more into that because I'm, I'm, you know, from that small interchange, I'm very opinionated when it comes to the interpretation specifically of, of late Baroque music. 
uh, I, I really, really like uh, tradition. I really like not necessarily thought out, but very old traditions like that stretch back that are essentially unbroken uh, and people who are, who are doing it not because of some lofty academic goal, but because that's what they do. You know, it's, 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 it kind of relates to, uh, to virtue ethics. You don't do good because you see yourself as a virtuous person. You do good because that's what you do, because you don't know any other way to do it. So, so I'll get into that maybe, maybe in a bit. That's a very long discussion, because <laughs> I've listened to a lot of music. I've listened to a lot of different interpretations of different pieces, and it always kind of come back, comes back to the same principles regarding uh, tradition and whatnot. But I, I can listen to music um, while studying if the music is quiet. If the music is loud, I'm going to be listening to the music, because I listen to music to listen to the music. I don't listen to it as background noise. Uh, and of course that depends on the, the music, and I just said it depends also on the dynamics of the music. So if it's put on very quietly, I'm, I'm going to find it much easier to tune it out. Um, if it's music that I really like, if it's music that I can jam out to, I'm going to jam out to it, and I, I'm not going to you know, focus on my studies or whatnot. The music that lend itself, lends itself best to kind of you know, being, being focused and, and uh, practicing whatever you, you, you're practicing, other than music, because of course you can't play music while listening to music, that will be confusing, um, is uh, minimalist music. So Terry Riley, uh, Steve Reich, all, all sorts of people who, who you know, I, I, can, I can put on a Terry Riley piece, now let's say in C, which is like 38 minutes long, and I can listen to it probably three times and, and study the whole while. Uh, it's essentially just a pulsating beat with a lot of different melody lines. I, I think it has around 50 individual melody lines, which are meant to be just put in almost at random uh, over a pulsating beat on on this uh, high C note of a piano. Um, so that's an example of a piece that you know I've I've listened to it a lot, and and uh, some other Terry Riley pieces. Terry Riley, I, I would say he's a classical composer. He was active in the 60s through the modern era. A lot of his stuff is pretty weird, but but I like the stuff that really kind of hits home in that minimalist way. Things that don't really change a whole lot. Things that phase in and out. Essentially ambient. But ambient conveys a lot, so so maybe that's not the right word to use. Let's get into like the radio and stuff. How hard is it to find like classical music on the radio nowadays? Oh, um, <laughs> I, I have a love hate relationship with uh, with the radio, specifically classical music um, as presented on the radio. I mean, some of the best uh, experiences that I've had uh, that weren't weren't brought on by my own saying, "I want to have this experience," and then I have that experience listening to music, you know, saying, "Oh, I want to listen to this record," putting that record on, and realizing that, "Oh, that is indeed what I what I what I really needed uh, at the time." I have been on WBJC, which is the Baltimore uh, classical radio station, ninety one point five. And I have a love-hate relationship uh, with them because they put on, you know, popular classical music. They put on, you know, French opera or, <laughs> or like 20th century classical music or just garbage interpretations of, of, of garbage music. And I, I mean that lovingly. You know, when I say garbage music, all, all, all music is good everywhere. That's, that's kind of what it is. All music is good at all times in any place. Um, but that's not to say that some music isn't better than others, at least for me. And everything that I'm saying, of course, is in, in, extremely subjective. I'd love, I'd love to meet a person who has the complete opposite mentality of, of me. I'd love <laughs> to meet a person who, who only start, you know, listens to music that was composed after 1830, who thinks that Baroque music is trash, and who thinks that John Elliott Gardner is the sole exception to the interpretation of Baroque music, and they would love to listen <laughs> to all of his Bach cantatas twice. I would love to have a conversation with that person, but I don't think that that person... Uh, exists in my in my sphere at this time. 
I've prank called WBJC a, a few times. <laughs> um, so, so one time, one time they were they were playing some French opera, and they they said that they'd be playing French opera for the next hour. And they were also doing a pledge drive. Um, so I called them and I said, I will donate a hundred dollars to this station to WBJC if you put on Carl Richter's interpretation of Bach's Mass in B minor, which is a two, a two and a half hour piece. I wasn't even sure if they had it in their library and they said, oh, you know, that's very funny, but would you like, still like to contribute? And I said, not unless you put on this piece. And they <laughs> said, oh, we can't do that for you. We, you know, we have to fill out this French opera program and you know, hung up the phone. So that's not so much prank calling as, <laughs> as essentially saying, you know, there is a, a quid pro quo that I'd like to, <laughs> like to fill, fill out. Uh, one time I was awake at like 1.30 and I happened to tune on uh, a WBJC and they had a Wagner um, opera. Actually, it was Das Rheingold and I listened to the whole thing and that was the first time that I had listened to, to the entirety of any opera, much less a Wagnerian opera, which I later got into. You know, I've, I've listened to um, all of the, the Ring, Ring trilogy, which is really a quadrilogy, uh, multiple occasions, multiple different interpretations. My favorite, though, is probably Tristan und Isolde. Uh, which is a five-and-a-half-hour opera uh, that only resolves itself at the end, which is to say that the entirety of the, um, uh, the drive of the music is towards irresolution. It's, it's, it's an it's a opera about love, uh, so it's very characteristic that the, the entirety of it is unsatisfactory until the final climactic end. And listening to that thing the whole way through, you know, that's a day. That's a day's listen. That's like if you have not a whole lot of other stuff to do that day. And you know, I was reading while well, well doing. And I, I think I was at, um, you know, I'd stay in the Hustle reading room at Hopkins and and, and study for a, for a little bit of that. But periodically, I would you know return to the music and just kind of zone out and and listen to it for half an hour or so. But that's also a very rewarding experience. You know, listening to the entirety of a five and a half hour opera. Yeah, no, I, I don't know, and, and I don't listen to music to be rewarded by completing it. Uh, myself and a friend had a um, had a de- on, an ongoing debate for a while. He's also a classical music fan, and his his tastes influence mine, and vice versa. Uh, but the debate was about uh, two things: Enzies versus Holzies. You know, listening to the whole of an opera or or a very long piece, say the Mass in B minor, the Saint Matthew Passion. Um, or just listening to the parts that are the best parts, you know, just listening to the choruses or just listening to the parts that are the most contrapuntally interesting, Enzies versus Holzies. And there's no solution to that, you know. There are arguments that could go for both ways. Um, I'm a little bit more of a more, more of an Enzies person in the sense that, at least nowadays, I don't necessarily have the time to dedicate myself to listening to the whole thing. So I, I listen to the excerpts that I like the most, and there's so much good music out there that really, if you're if you're a Holsey's person, you're, you're probably never going to discover a lot of the good music that exists out there, um, especially if your your time is limited. But for a while, I was a I was a Holsey's person in the sense that I was very obnoxious, as I am now about you know interpretation, but I was especially obnoxious about you know hey, don't just listen to the track on an album that you like the most, listen to the whole album because um, you know it's like being blindfolded for a long period of time. If you're blindfolded for a while. When you take your blindfold off, it's going to be a whole different experience than if you just blindfolded yourself for a minute and took the blindfold off. Um, or speaking in opposites, for that matter. I've spoken in opposites for, I think, three hours is the longest. <laughs> you know, not saying uh, whatever isn't the opposite of whatever you, you don't have to say at any given point. And there is a convention concerning it because it's all a very formal uh, scenario. And when you stop you know, speaking in opposites, something in your brain has changed. And that, that change reverses itself. You know, after a few minutes, but but for that few minutes, it, it's really weird to talk. Yeah, so so that's that's kind of one of the debates that that I've concerned myself with as as concerns uh, listening to music, and there are a few others, but we don't need to go into those. <laughs>
All right, so let's backtrack to like sure. 30 minutes ago. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned circular breathing. Yeah. That was something I learned actually in a rap song back in... Probably 2006, so when... <laughs> well, if you're engaging your vocal and cords, then why was, would you need, how, how can like, you circular breathe? Well, I, I wasn't circular breathing. I heard it in a rap song. Yeah. Someone mentioned it. I was oh, like, okay, this is okay. the most interesting thing ever. So how did you learn how to circular oh, breathe I, I, to do this? Because then I heard like everyone does it in people, Australia. People have asked me this question. So usually yeah. when I rattle off all the instruments that mm-hmm. I play, when I have the opportunity to do that, mm-hmm. um, when I say didgeridoo, people are like, whoa, you play the didgeridoo? And I was like, dude, I just said reed organ, accordion, <laughs> recorder, mandolin, violin. Oh, we'll come get on. to those. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. Um, and they asked me how to circular breathe. And mm-hmm. I say, well, you just have to walk around for no less than two to three days. And, and hopefully this will trans, transmit well to just audio, but you have to walk around doing this. <laughs> so, so it's, you know, you're, you're breathing in your nose, and then you're storing that air. Well, hold on. Yeah, you're breathing in your nose. Some of that air is going into your lungs, and the rest of it is going out your mouth. So there's an uninterrupted flow of, of air. And um, if you're feeling like you're low on air, you can puff up your cheeks and then blow out all of the air over a period of time that you've got in your cheeks while you just breathe in your nose. So the longest time that I've circular breathed into a didgeridoo is about 45 minutes, but I could have gone longer. You know, that was just, uh, that wasn't because of fatigue. Uh, some people can do it for, for very long. There's one guy who, who I've, uh, uh, I've played with actually in a, uh, in an impromptu imp- improvisational ensemble, uh, experimental music ensemble in Baltimore, um, his name is Andrew Bernstein. He's he's the he's the saxophone player for for a band named Horse Lords. He circular breathes into the saxophone, which I don't know how he does that because circular breathing is kind of limited by the fact that you can really only get so much air out over a certain period yeah. of time. A didgeridoo doesn't really require that much air, but a saxophone really does. Yeah, uh, I, I remember Kenny G. I watched we watched some NBC episode and they had a little news clip of Kenny G circular breathing yeah. <laughs> I was, I it was like 30 minutes long I just remember that. I was like whoa yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, one note so did you self-teach yourself no this? my friend uh, okay. my, my friend who who, who uh, uh, with whom I share m- much affectation in, in, as regards classical music he he taught me how to circular breathe and he was taught how to play didgeridoo by the grandmaster of the didgeridoo the, the the you know he's a probably i would say grandmaster he's probably more like a minor deity of the of the didgeridoo world whose name is uh, Pitts Quatrone uh, he's a wild and crazy guy and i uh, encourage everyone to look up uh, two videos of his uh, one is um, uh, cheese steaks and tasty cakes um, which is an uh, anthem to philadelphia and the other one, which is the better one, uh, will come to my mind shortly. But th- that's, oh man, uh, I think Moving, yeah, it's called Moving. M-O-V-I-N. Pitts Quatrone. And he plays the didgeridoo, and I believe several un- other instruments. And for a while, actually, I was, I was sending him um, uh, fan art that I would make. So I would, I would take uh, pictures of him, and I would, I would cut out his, his form and whatever instrument he was playing, and I would, um, I would paste them onto psychedelic backgrounds. And on one particular image, I, I had a camel that I cut out, and I put that on a psychedelic background, and then I cut out his head and put it over the camel's head, and I believe that he liked that one. I'm not sure, though. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be really cool to see that become an album cover. Oh, yeah. yeah. He said that on his next album, he, would, he might include several of those, those images that I sent him. I heard some of, like, there's some special violins that go for thousands and tens of special thousands Special violins? Of, oh, thousands. tens of thousands of dollars? My, my, I heard this on, like, a, a podcast of someone that mentioned, oh, yeah, I play the violin, and, and they're like, did you ever hear of this such-and-such type of violin? So, so there are a few makers of yeah. violins um, uh, from, from, you know, the Baroque era. 
as, as a whole, um, whose violins are, are renowned for their, you know, tonal qualities, for their, their just, their reputation is immeasurable. Guarneri is one, Amadi is the other, and the biggest one is Stradivarius. So Stradivarius violins, I think there are about 400 of those that are around, 400 violins and a few cellos and like maybe a viola or two. Okay. I'm not sure if he ever made basses. He made a guitar, a few guitars. His workshop shop was, was operating for about 50 years. So Stradivarius, as well as his, his students in the, in the craft, craft of you know, making musical instruments. I think that, I, I'm not sure, um, but his, his instruments, you know, I don't think that, that any of them would go for less than $500,000, and certainly the vast majority are mil, more than a million. Um, and that's not necessarily just because they sound that great. You know, uh, there, there are a few uh, double-blind tests that were done in the, in the 60s that I'm familiar with on, you know, having professional violinists playing these violins and then trying to d differentiate which they were and then also playing top-of-the-line violins from the modern era and saying, okay, this is, a, this is clearly a modern violin versus this, this is clearly a violin that was made, you know, 300 years ago by a, by a world-renowned maker. And they were able to discriminate them. So I don't know if there's much to be said in terms of the tonal qualities of the instruments outweighing the reputation as, as regards the cost of these instruments. But it's, I mean, reputation is everything in, in, in musicology and in academia. If a violin has the name Stradivarius attached to it, it is going to sell for a lot of money. Yeah. And that's not to say that these violins don't sound, you know, sound dope. They are, <laughs> are good-sounding instruments. But who's to say that a, that a Stradivarius instrument is any better than a you know, extremely well-built violin made in 2000. I, I knew a guy, um, he, he was a student teacher at my, um, at my high school. I think it was, I think it was uh, 12th grade that I, that I met him. He was really into Wagnerian opera, so, so he's, he's where I derive most of my knowledge about, about that uh, aspect of classical music. He was a cellist. He owned a cello. I don't know how much his cello cost, but there were only two in the world like it. It was an Amati copy, so a copy of a cello that was made by another luthier, Amati in the 1700s. This copy was made in the 1970s, and there were only two made like it. Um, the other one was played by some you know, professional cellist. And this guy was very good at it. Um, but his bow was particularly inter interesting. His bow um, he bought for $25,000. I remember him saying $25,000. It was with his grand grandparents' inheritance. Uh, it was a, it was an original Amati bow. This was a bow that was made in the workshop of the, of the maker in the, in the you know, 18th century. And it was curved. It wasn't meant to be curved, but over time it had warped slightly. Okay. So, so it wasn't even in perfect condition, but this bow was, he, he got it for $25,000. And that's essentially just a stick of wood with some hair attached to it. <laughs> um, uh, and my violin teacher you know, essentially collected violins. Um, the one that she played um, had a label on the inside of it that said, I think, 1770 or 1780, but she was pretty, pretty sure that it that was, a, it was a forgery that was made you know, 50 years after that, which is still impressive. Mm -hmm. Um, an impressive vintage for, a, for an instrument, especially in the, the condition that hers was. But she would regularly purchase both violins and uh, violas and bows and, and different things for thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, maybe not regularly, you know, I don't think that she could necessarily afford it. Her husband played with the BSO. Mm -hmm. yes. yeah, I was way off when I said tens of thousands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, that I mean, that's the yeah. thing. If you're, if you go into, you know, the manufacturing of musical instruments, like if you want to start your own artisan shop for, you know, being being a luthier or what whatnot, you know, and and you're you're going to try to market to the pros. You want to start selling your instruments at like ten thousand dollars, fifteen thousand dollars. The, the violin that I played in, in high school, so when I was 16, I got a new violin. I had a student model, which was probably $600. The violin that I played was around $1,500. And, and that, that was a magnificent instrument, and I pair-wanded deeply with that, with that violin. Um, 
but that's like a, essentially a bottom of the line, uh, you know, sub professional model uh, uh, that I got when I was 16. So that brings up an interesting question. Um, so, like schools, and you know how like we're losing music class. Oh yeah. School. Is that because these instruments are so expensive? Um, like you said, like the bottom line is like six hundred. No, I wouldn't. I mean, I, that, of course, that's a factor. Of course, mm-hmm. the the fact that you know a lot of a lot of families are di- disadvantaged to the point where they can't they can't make the three hundred or four hundred dollar contribution to buy a you know a student model instrument for their kid that that might blossom into the the child having a a deep relationship with music for the rest of their life. Um, you, you can tell that w- which side of this debate, you know, whether or not we should have music classes, uh, I fall on. Not only because of what I just said, but also because yeah. of my own background. Yeah. Even though I got embarrassed in music class, I would still think music class yeah, is, yeah. is worthwhile. I actually, I actually <laughs> just had this conversation with the, with the vice principal who's, who's on, on, on camp right now. I feel like there's, a, there's, a, there's such a concentration on STEM. There's such a concentration on you know, kids learning how to, how to compete in the workforce and really drive towards college, 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 and, and, and work, 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 and really dedicating themselves more so to uh, you know, STEM, science, technology, uh, what's e? Engineering. Engineering, right. Uh, <laughs> and, and mathematics. Um, Music, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that things like the humanities, things that relate to private pursuits uh, you know, for, for your own. Individualism, for, I feel like, well, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, but that that's to be expected from the from the public school model, um, and that's that's uh, a little bit disappointing and discouraging, more than a little bit. But especially in the realm of music, you know, I was fortunate enough to go to a high school that had a stellar music program, uh, which was led by stellar people. Um, I was fortunate enough to have had that, those experiences, and Peter Lander was one of the best um, conductors that I've ever I've ever worked under. You know, in the same rehearsal, he would scream at you for you know getting a note wrong or for or for messing up the rhythm of something, and he would commend you for how beautifully you just played a passage. Uh, uh, and, and I guess I, I excelled under that type of environment or that, under that type of um, leadership, but, but some people not so much. Some people require a bit of a, of a soft, softer, lighter touch. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of kids are, are going through kind of you know, half-assed music programs or music programs that don't ex- even exist, or rather not going through music programs. And, and there's a limited amount of money you know, out there in the world for public school. And music programs don't always pay off. You know, you have you teach literally everyone in the in the grade, or almost everyone. I remember there were maybe like ten or twenty kids who didn't play an instrument in fifth grade, in in my school. And I imagine that in, in schools that pull from a slightly less uh, advantaged and, and privileged background, that quantity is more. But there were only ten or twenty kids who didn't. And then by the time I graduated, you know, we had a band and an orchestra, and the, the orchestra had maybe twenty five kids in it, and the band had. A little bit more than that, and of course. So let's not forget, you know, our, our dear singers. Oh, speaking of singing, uh, uh, another another musical tradition which I'm uh, I delight in, and will I'm looking forward to taking part in when I do uh, leave in the fall is Sacred Harp. So Sacred Harp is a is a tradition of music which which harkens to the British Isles in the in the latter part or the in the early part of the the 18th century, I should say. You've got four sections: soprano, alto, tenor, bass, which all face each other. So it's four chunks of people which are all facing a center conductor, mm-hmm. um, who conducts in a very simplistic fashion. Um, and the the book, the Sacred Harp, was published in the 1850s. Um, the book is essentially a compilation of hymns from the preceding you know, 150 years. I don't think many have been added since its its original publication, but several alterations and uh, additions have come out. I think the most recent one was was in uh, in the early 2000s. I mean, no music touches your heart quite like Sacred Harp does. The people who sing it aren't trained. They're they're mostly laymen, or they're they're people who maybe have a little bit of musical background. 
Um, and the notation, the style of notation of sacred harp music is also different than the, the Western convention. It's, it's shape notes, so each note has a particular sh- shape which represents it. Instead of do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, it's fa, sol, la, fa, sol, la, mi, fa, which is a little bit confusing, I think, for people who are familiar with do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's something that I'll, that I'll be taking part in when I'm at, at Oxford in the, in the fall, because um, they do have a sacred harp uh, singing society or, or a club that uh, I'm going to track down and inject <laughs> myself into. All right, so we have like six instruments here that I don't think we've gotten into. <laughs> You've had like five or six organs. Oh yeah, I've, I've, um, I own yeah, technically I own six organs. Okay. One of which is not currently on my possession because my mom was so mad at me for bringing home the last organ, which I brought home that she made me, uh, quote unquote, get rid of one, um, which went to the friend of my little brother. And eventually that'll that'll come back to me because that's the first organ that I bought back back in eleventh grade. Um, so so I'm I'm very well bonded to that instrument. So so I'll, I'll go through them uh, chronologically. So that first instrument uh, I bought because my friend had a Hammond E uh, E model, which is a step down from a B3. You know, I was two manuals and a full pedal board and draw bars and presets and all that. And I said earlier that that playing that instrument is like playing a freight train. So I got a, a step from a step down from that one, which is a which is I believe it was an L143. Very distorted, you know. Not only did it sound like a freight train, it sounded like a like a piece of spaghetti going through a strainer. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly where I pulled that uh, analogy from. <laughs> more like, more like a, a chunk of spatula being scraped off of a board. That's that's a little bit more <laughs> applicable. And maybe maybe two people who are listening to this will get what what I'm saying. When I say that. <laughs> but yeah, and that 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 instrument, man, I, I that was actually the instrument on which I learned the first piece of uh, uh, piece of music that I've I, I learned, which was. Um, uh, just the very end, the very last like eight bars, I think, from an organ concerto, the fifth organ concerto by J.S. Bach, and that's an extremely difficult piece of music. Uh, and and I didn't know how to read um, music for keyboard before before that, so it took me probably 20 hours to just learn those eight bars. And I've since forgotten them. I just know like the the first two of those eight bars now. But but I'm sure if I found the sheet music again, I, I could probably work it out. The second organ that I bought, no, that's an electronic organ. That uses tone wheels. That uses um, rotating uh, 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 electric, well, it uses rotating disks of metal that when you actuate a key, um, those, the corresponding rotating disks goes near an electromagnetic pickup, which generates a tone. So that's the, that's the principle of operation of a, of a Hammond organ or a tone wheel organ. The second organ that I got was a uh, reed organ. So reed organs are essentially like... I mean, I always use this analogy, but it's not quite apt because a harmonica, um, you can both blow in and out, and rows, a, a reed organ is a, operates on suction. So it uses reeds, you know, it, it uses uh, free-blowing reeds. The reed organ that I got in freshman year of college had 10 stops, um, only two ranks of reeds, though, two, two in the treble and two in the bass. Um, this, or, this instrument was made somewhere in the 1880s, um, and its tone was very, very smooth. Uh, I still refer to it as the Amazing Grace organ because one of the first uh, uh, pieces of music that I, I learned on it was was just essentially the chordal accompaniment to Amazing Grace. And the first time that I sung publicly was at my camp, the camp that I worked at over the summer, uh, and I sang Amazing Grace on it. And and just my I believe that my particular voice melts with the timbre of this particular instrument quite well. And I did I did a lot of work on it too because you know with a reed organ as with any instrument it requires a fair amount of maintenance. Um, so sometimes reeds are jammed because you know a little piece of grit gets stuck in them, and then the reed stops speaking. So you have to pull it out with a particular tool, and then and then you know fix it. This one I've taken apart um, and put back together three times. So so I, I know this instrument inside out. 
The third organ that I got was uh, was a uh, made by the Williams Organ Company, based out of Chicago. That one was made probably around 1916. Um, that has 15 stops. That's much bigger. It has a sub bass stop, which is a octave um, uh, a lower than the normal eight foot stop, which is the standard. Like on a piano, if you play any given note, that's an eight foot note. Um, whereas if you go down a down a down an octave, that's 16 foot. Uh, so let's see. That's that's the second one. Then the third breed organ that I got was in St. Mary's County. That I got for forty dollars. They were practically giving it away. Forty dollars. Yeah. And the other two only cost me two hundred a piece. Um, and I, I had to do minimal maintenance work on the second one and and on this one. Um, although I I wanted to since it was so cheap, I figured what the hell I'll, I'll experiment with it a little bit. So I tuned it to mean tone. All of the all of the music that I play on organs, um, other than a few hymns, is uh, Elizabethan or English versional music, uh, and all of it is actually out of the same book of music, which was which was compiled, I believe, in 1613 um, by a prisoner uh, in England. So so all of the music that comes from it is is from the preceding a uh, hundred years or so, and it was all meant to originally be played on on a variant of a harpsichord called called a virginal. Uh, so mean tone is the is the style of intonation, or, or most closely approximates the style of intonation. So the actual pitch values of all of the notes on the keyboard that Elizabethan English music was was played on. So I've tuned this organ, um, which took me a very long while because in order to tune a reed, you have to, have to actually file it, um, you know, in, in different places. And, and I actually broke a couple reeds doing that, which I'm sad about because now there's one note that if I engage a particular stop, it doesn't that uh, note doesn't speak. Um, but there are ways that I can remediate that. I can track down some a, set, a guy with a set of reeds that he's willing to part with and, and um, recycle them from that, which I might do over the summer. I have a guy, actually. <laughs> and that actually brings me to this last organ, or the second to last organ, the last reed organ, um, I should say. Uh, I was on a biking trip with, with my camp. We were at the Whitehall uh, uh, NCR entrance, and there's an antique shop, and we had some time to time to spend, so we walked over to this antique shop and I walked in and there were two reed organs and a melodeon. A melodeon is, is, a, is a, even an earlier version of a reed organ. I should say reed organs are, are a stereotypically American instrument. At, at, at their peak there were over 600 uh, individual manufacturers, like individual cottage industry manufacturers of reed organs in the United States alone. And there were, there were also uh, reed organ manufacturers operating in Canada and there were also some in Europe. Um, so it was by no means a, a small industry. Um, you know, a lot of the manufacturers would also uh, make pianos and other other keyboard instruments and other instruments at that. So this last one I, I got at this antique shop. This one I got for sixty dollars. Um, this is probably the most bang for my buck in terms of in terms of any instrument that I've uh, acquired. It's a portable folding uh, a field organ. So so this instrument weighs about fifty or sixty pounds. It's manufactured by the largest and most the, the essentially the largest and arguably best. I mean, they had the best reputation for their instruments. You know, their instruments are top notch. You, you can st they they needed essentially no maintenance. Um, manufacturer of reed organs uh, out of America, which is known as the SD Company, out of Brattleboro, Vermont. Um, they were one of the last to close down. They closed down in the 60s, which is about 40 years past the time when reed organs started really their their big decline and became eclipsed by the by the piano because pianos got a lot more cheap. Uh, this is also known as a Parsons organ, since it was it was carried around by you know uh, Parsons or, or, or ministers or clergy um, uh, who happened to also play music. I really like this instrument. You know, I can I can bring it from place to place. It has a a, a great timbre. Um, it's it's got two swell levers, one of which controls the eight foot stop, one of which controls the four foot stop. Yeah, it's just a good it's a good piece of equipment. I'd like to play a selection of that, but I'll go over the last uh, the last instrument now. 
The last organ is the logical culmination of the entire entirety of my organ buying or organ acquiring experience. Um, uh, I was inspired to get my first organ by my friend's organ, which was a Hammond E100 model. The last organ that I acquired is a Hammond E100 model. And not only that, it's a, it's a more recent E. Hammond model, which has more, um, more things that you can do with it. And his organ did not have a functioning reverb stop. Uh, mine does. So reverb is essentially you know, an echo function, which really contributes to the, to the timbre and the sounds that you can get out of it. So I've, I've had a lot of fun with that one. That one was actually located in Washington, D.C., and, and so I used my family's minivan to go pick it up without telling my mom. <laughs> so when I showed up with it and, and put it in my basement with my little brother, she was, she was not, uh, not excited. <laughs> um, and thus I, thus I you know, got rid of my, my first organ. But that's fine. It's, it's a ham, and it operates on the same principles. All right. So, do you want to get started and yeah, yeah. play us a few tunes? Yeah, I'll play you a couple. This because this is a podcast on everything. First, We've never had anyone play music, and and um, as he's setting it up, I remember being outside of work once and he was serenading me with music. Oh, on the accordion. <laughs> the accordion. Yeah, yeah. And I was like walking around. Who is playing? And then I see I see Jacob over there just going to town. Like, man, this is awesome. And that's when I realized I wanted him on the show. And like two weeks later, you know, asking me, which is awesome. So he is setting up his organ. I have a crazy question for you. Sure. This may be off the wall. Yeah. There's a handful of sports teams left that still have organs. Huh. Would, are, is like one of your goals to go there and just listen to them play an organ in front of 20,000 people? Uh, uh, you, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, there, there is a role for... Massive numbers of people, as as relates to the the performance of music in any civil society, I think that I think that that role is 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 perfectly performed by by you know an organist who's who's playing for a stadium full of people, um, but that's not really where I find myself getting the most musical satisfaction. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm more just, of a I'm more yeah. of a salon kind of guy. I like you know close gathering of friends or colleagues who are who are all you know getting in one place yeah. to to listen to you know somebody play uh, a tune. Yeah. So that's what I'll do now. Yeah, I'm just picturing Jacob like watching a baseball game at maybe the Cubs or wherever they have it, and an organ goes off and he goes, "Oh my God, this is amazing!" <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I'm gonna so, take a break from the mic and let Jacob take over right. his organ. Um, so the first piece, uh, the first piece is uh, uh, called Giles Farnaby's Dream. Giles Farnaby was a composer, and this is his dream. <laughs> Actually, the second piece of music that I learned for for organ from the from the Fitzwilliam Virginal book, 
The first is, is arguably the simplest. The, uh, this one was composed by William Byrd, um, probably around 1590 or so. Uh, it's called Woolsey's Wild. I don't know why it's called that. Jacob for that. We got the mics back to where they need to be. You also brought a few other instruments which we will get into. Um, so you went from the violin to the mandolin. Right. What yeah. made you do that? I, I remember in ninth grade I wanted a mandolin. I don't much remember why that was. Um, I knew that a mandolin was tuned like a violin. I don't remember any reason for, for wanting to expand my, my musical vocabulary uh, past the single instrument that I knew at that point, I, mean, I went down to Guitar Center and, and, and bought one. Uh, uh, I think it was two hundred dollars. It was a it was a pretty bottom of the line model. I still have it. It's probably the instrument that I've pair bonded with the most because I've played it the most. Um, this is an instrument that that for a while I would play, you know, two to three hours a day. I essentially transitioned all of the um, all of the repertoire that I had learned on violin to mandolin. Uh, or at least that that subset, which lent itself particularly well to that instrument. So most most of it was Bach, um, actually. Which is which. Looking back on that, it's stellar that I was able to actually do that because that was some really hard music. Um, the first thing that I did with my mandolin when I got home was I took off um, one string on each of the courses. A, a violin has one string per course, a mandolin has two. So instead of G D A E, it's G G D D A A E E. And there are a number of reasons why I did that. The the first and foremost was just to make it more similar to a violin. Uh, and easier to, to you know, uh, finger the notes. Secondarily, it was because it's much easier to play contrapuntal music, especially fast contrapuntal music, um, along the lines of what Bach wrote for the violin on an instrument with one string per course. 
I knew very early on that I wanted a much larger mandolin. I didn't know that larger mandolins existed. I wanted an instrument that had, I just remember wanting one with a larger body and a longer neck. Um, uh, and it was only, let's see, that was ninth grade, I was 15. Um, so last year I was 21, and that's when I acquired this next instrument. That was six years later that I finally um, uh, 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 had gained the satisfaction that I that I deserved from the beginning or required from the beginning that that um, so I purchased an octave mandolin which is which is like a mandolin except um, exactly as I described it has a larger body and a longer neck um, and it and it uh, is tuned exactly one octave below a below a normal mandolin uh, and that's the instrument that I play um, with the Baltimore Mandolin Orchestra and I play in the mandola section so a violin is tuned like a mandolin a viola is tuned like a mandola. Uh, a cello is tuned like a mandocello, and a bass, uh, an upright bass, is tuned like a mando bass. And I, at very early on, I had no idea that any of these instruments existed other than the mandolin. Um, and it was only later on that I discovered that oh, there's it's an entire family of instruments. Musical instruments, as with a lot of other you know things that develop over time, um, kind of take the to the the shape of a tree structure. Um, so you have different families and then subfamilies and genera and species of, of, of musical instruments made by different manufacturers over different uh, periods of time in different places. Um, uh, the mandolin is, is, no, uh, is one of the only members of the lute family that's, that's commonly performed on today. Um, so the very early mandolins were stringed with gut. They were tuned like violins and they were, they were essentially small lutes. Um, uh, and then in the, in the late uh, uh, 19th century, uh, Orville Gibson, who started the Gibson Mandolin and Guitar Company, which okay. still exists, yeah. He um, uh, uh, took that to the the Italian school of mandolin making and essentially turned it on it on its head um, and started making mandolins um, uh, more like the ones that kind of the common picture of a mandolin is today. So it, it's a more of a flat body, uh, a not a rounded back, a flat back, or or a very you know minutely rounded back, kind of a teardrop shape or a teardrop with a with a little scroll on it. Um, which are A model and F model mandolins, respectively. Um, typically, A model mandolins are cheaper, but not always. So the first mandolin that I got was an A model. The the octave mandolin that I have is an A model. But I've had the opportunity to play a uh, both a octave mandolin and a mandocello that were um, uh, made more in the style of uh, of the Italian school of mandolin making, which actually looked like lutes. Um, so it's a teardrop shape, but it has a very rounded back. So you know, from the back of the instrument to the to the soundboard is probably like six inches for a mandolin, and even more for a octave mandolin, and even more for a mandocello. And I, but I don't think that mando basses are made along those lines. Mando basses are a, are a, an instrument to their own. They're, they don't even have two two strings per course; it's just one. So they're more more like a stand up bass, but they have frets. So the instrument that I have uh, here that I'll play is. Um, uh, is a very bottom of the line model. I've I've had the misfortune in, in the area of mandolins, except save for one mandolin that I own, of only acquiring really those instruments that are the cheapest because I obviously can't really dedicate that much <laughs> many resources. I'd love to buy you know a Gibson model mandolin. Um, there was a guy Lloyd Lore who's a luthier in the in the middle part of the 1920s who uh, made mandolins. He made he made uh, mandolins. He made mandocellos. He made uh, mandolas. Uh, and though he's like the Stradivarius of the mandolin world, Chris Teeley, who's who uh, hosts um, uh, live from here on NPR, he's a, he's an exceptionally accomplished mandolinist. He plays a Lloyd Lohr uh, signed F5 mandolin, of which there are a number in the world, but but his is uh, special in the in the in the way that before he played it, nobody had played it, so it essentially stayed in a box for 80 years. 
uh, 80 or 90 years. But this, this instrument is made by some company with, without much reputation. Uh, it's got a couple of problems with it. Some of the frets um, aren't low enough, so there's a b little bit of buzz, buzz around the frets. And it's got top sync, which means that its neck is, uh, or not, r rather the soundboard is, is syncing a little bit, so it needs some trust rod adjustment. And I'm not taking it to a luthier because this instrument didn't really you know, cost me enough for, for me to, to, to decide to, to maintain it in any which way. There's three other instruments that um, I have written down that you've played. Um, we're going to see you based on time if we're going to be able to talk to Jacob about those or we'll make a, another podcast, but here he goes. as a guy that doesn't listen to the mandolin that seems completely fine <laughs> <laughs> you mean fine for me to perform cello music on <laughs> no fine as in I couldn't hear oh, anything yeah, wrong yeah. with well, it well it's got buzz it's got, it's got some okay. sounds yeah uh, do you want me to do another yeah it's right. completely up to you we have time
play a piece perfectly that's the thing like like none of the pieces that I've played um, now were played perfectly I you know missed some notes or you know, in, you know. It, it depends on the setting you know I mean I, I say you can never play something perfectly but I've played I've played pieces all the way through where I say you know if, if I had a recording of that I would that would be the end all be all to my playing that piece that's okay. that's the logical conclusion of my practicing those pieces but it's it's difficult to record music, you know. I have a I have a particular I say I have a fear of a microphone in a in a setting. So you know I have a, a Shure SM58 which I which I use a preamp through, but I don't think I've got any recordings of of pieces that I I play that I'm particularly proud of that I say you know this is album quality. And that's not only due to the fact that I do absolutely no post production on any of the music <laughs> that I record. Um, but also because because I, I mess up. So there's a piece that I know that's that's 14 variations on the same theme um, that I've been, I've been playing for several months. Um, actually, I've been playing it since uh, since October. So that's like uh, seven, eight eight months, yeah. seven or seven or eight months. And and the first variation is extremely easy. And I I've never messed it up. Like uh, past my learning, you know, the stage of time where I was learning the piece. After that, I never messed it up. Then I tried to record it, and I messed up the first version. <laughs> so that's just that's just a testament to how how tricky it is, really. Because you you go into a different frame of mind. You're like, well, this is going to be preserved for posterity. That means something different than me just playing this for myself now. It takes a long time and a lot of maintenance of technique to be able to play piece, you know, through and to interpret it well. So so I tend to. Um, for myself, I interpret pieces kind of straightforwardly. When I'm in a, when I'm in a, when I have an audience, um, I really embellish the interpretation. It, it gets really, you know, I, I put my face into it, so to speak. I, I really get down to the details, and you know, I, I do rubato and I, and I uh, do ritardando and, and crescendos and diminuendos and all the different words of music that I don't really know. I don't really know what I'm doing, for that matter. I just, I just go where the music takes me. Um, whereas when I'm just playing for, for myself, I usually play it. More or less the same way every time, unless I'm, you know, decided I've decided to experiment that time. There's a piece that I know on on reed organ um, that I've now uh, played in front of two groups. Um, I played it for, for both the Baltimore Mandolin Orchestra um, actually just yesterday night uh, for our final uh, party of the season. Or final? It's not a final party. It's the the party of the season because oh, yeah. the season is over. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I also played for the Maryland Accordion Club, um, and that's the that's the hardest piece that I know on on reed organ. You know, it has it has fast notes and hard notes, and it's it's tough. 
Um, and I've probably been playing that piece for since uh, since you know mid March. So I've been playing it for about three months now. Um, and I got it down. You know, there were a couple times when I played it, and I played it through perfectly, and got all of the you know nitty gritty details of it, and got all of the the, the rhythms and, and and all of the interpretation was right. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm I can do this, and I can that that encourages me to play it in front of a group. Um, and then when I go to play it in front of the group, I do a heck of a job, and I I really interpret it, and I I pour myself into it, but I still mess up some parts that I never mess up, um, and that's just because you know I, I get lost in the in the weeds, so to speak. And the performance of music is all about staying just slightly above the fray, and sometimes dipping into it, but for those dips into the fray to be particularly artful, um, and that's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. You know, I don't know why it is that when I'm in a group of people. I kind of launch into, I, I, I don't zone out, I zone in. I launch into a completely different way of, of interpreting pieces. Um, and that's not so true for what I just did now because, you know, it's just me and you and, and I'm, I'm more much more comfortable than playing in front of a group of, say, you know, 35 or 40 people. Um, but, but yeah, uh, uh, it, takes, it takes months to, to really get a piece down, especially to the point where I, where I memorize it. And I don't, I don't think that I can play a piece fully until I've, Memorized it and, and can play it, you know, at least twice um, from memory without having to really think about like actually what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. What's the uh, largest group you've ever played in front of? Well, for for any instrument, probably that was on violin. Um, uh, I was the concertmaster of my house, high school orchestra and had a solo for a piece. Um, probably like 250 people or so. What's it like to be on a stage? Because I've never been on a stage like that. I've played sports and they're you know, yeah. Throughout, it's mostly parents and like that, and a few fans. And well, man, that, that so was, what's it like to like go out in front of two hundred fifty people and they're like looking at you? Yeah, yeah. Music? And and I have to, yeah, and I have to do well. Yeah. Uh, to play all the notes right. Um, uh, it, it's a challenge. I mean, you, you you get used to it. Certainly, you know, the first time is nothing like the the fifth time or yeah. the fifteenth time for that matter. Initially, initially, it's it's all about the feeling that you have in your gut. It's all about the butterflies that you have in your stomach and whether or not you can stop shaking long enough to to play the right note. Later on, it's more about keeping your mind from wandering. And I'm I'm just speaking for myself because I have you know my own psychological dispositions which lead me to to think different things well in different circumstances. But it's about keeping your mind from wandering. So just last night when I was playing um, this piece for my uh, my orchestra, uh, something got into my head, which I was focused on, uh, I think, which was, you know, when's the last time I've eaten? Because I didn't, I didn't really <laughs> eat that night. So, so I, I was thinking about when the last time that I ate was, um, and it wasn't important the last time that I was, I was eating. It was the least important thing that was happening. And I had to consciously think the thought, you know, stop thinking about this, just stop <laughs> thinking about anything, just, just concentrate. But yeah, I, I have a I have a mind that tends to wander, especially when I'm in you know uh, uh, somewhat stressful circumstances, which which playing in front of a group is, um, you know, not that stress is a bad thing. You know, an intermediate level of stress can can work wonders for 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 you in terms of in terms of your performance, and I think that's what really leads me to to interpret pieces in in the way that I do when I'm in front of a crowd. Is just that little ounce of stress that really drives me to to put put myself into my music. Yeah, I think stress is good, especially for growth. Oh like yeah, you have to be stressed yeah. a little bit. Maybe not to the extreme, like you know. And certain people you know, are, are right. able to, to tolerate, yeah. you know, gross uh, levels of stress. Um, and those people are the, the people who you know yeah. find themselves drawn to be, be workaholics or, or work for, uh, you know, work under stressful circumstances. The trick is to, to balance, you know, because music music is a way that I 
that I decrease the levels of stress that I find myself facing on, on a daily basis. You know, if I'm, you know, having to deal with a, a stressful circumstance for one reason or another, if I return to my keyboard or my mandolin fretboard or my recorder finger holes or the accordion button board or any of the, you know, my didgeridoo mouth hole, um, <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm certainly less likely to, to let that stress overcome me. And, and I, w- I would say that stress kind of turns into a good thing because it kind of uh, orients me, it grounds me. Because music is something that I do so much and spend my, so much of my time doing. It's something that I really um, not only enjoy returning to, but, but need to return to. You know, if I find myself away from my mandolin for more than like a day, I, I go through fingerings in my head and I play mandolin in my head. <laughs> and that's really something. Yeah, I was, yeah, I love that you brought up about de-stressing because that is important when you are stressed out. Yeah. Well, it's all <laughs> yeah. about balance. It's all about moderation. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're if you're facing huge levels of stress, you know, and and I can and I can speak from experience. Um, you know, having attended Johns Hopkins, um, I, I was you know pretty successful in high school when it comes to comes to dealing with stressful circumstances. You know, I tested well, um, hit all the marks. I didn't really have to dedicate a whole lot of um, uh, mental inertia behind behind efforts to, to uh, uh, you know improve my my academic standing. Um, so I concentrated on things like music and, and reading and cultivating my own like academic interests and intellectual pursuits, um, which not everybody has the opportunity to do. Which is which is one of the reasons why I think that the level of stress that people have to undergo in, in terms of like standardized testing and and, mm-hmm. and the same such things th- that's really that's really a that's really a problem. Yeah, but then you can get into like a whole realm of things of stuff at the house and that kind of stress. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I I mean I mean I tell here I tell my students you know there are some people who go through their lives and they work a dead end job that they hate and they get home and they watch TV or they play video games or they do things that don't necessarily cultivate their own personalities because the most important thing that you can possibly work on is your own your own personality and disposition that guides the decisions that you make the interactions that you have uh, the way that you spend your time um, essentially the whole of your being so if you can trace it to one thing it's your it's your character which i which i get is a relatively ambiguous or or otherwise vague um uh, entity, you know, what is a character? What is what is your character? You know, are the words that I'm speaking somehow a facet of my character? <laughs> Certainly, the way that I phrase myself is because there are certain generalities that you can put put behind that. That you can say, oh, he's different than this person, which is different than per- this person based on you know something as simple as the way that they talk. Um, but is you know, how do you define the content of somebody's character? And that's something that's really with, more within the realm of you know personality psychology, which I have my own disputes with with, which we won't <laughs> get into. Um, but yeah, the 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 problem, the main problem being, you know, if you if you have a legitimately socially adverse environment, like say your your home environment is not um, uh, is not comfortable, or you don't really have a place that you can go where you can focus on things that are that are oriented towards you know improving your character or or pursuing your interests, that's a bad situation because then you're more likely to become one of those people who's who's spending their lives not really doing any, doing anything productive for themselves, not really working on themselves because they, nobody's ever really taught them how, and they've never really come to that you know massive epiphany that oh that is something that I can work on, that's something that I can def- dedicate inertia towards. Yeah, and then there's just the self confidence of that person is mm-hmm. is not where it could be. Confidence is yeah. everything though. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I got I got some yeah. flack um, uh, uh, for the level of confidence that I project um in in my in my you know social environment and which i which i appreciate i don't think that everybody should be um as in your face as i am um you know i i find it somewhat difficult to uh, 
you know, make small talk without bringing the small talk into the realm of bigger talk. Um, and that, that's a little bit of a patronizing statement, and maybe it, it does also reveal some, um, some degree of kind of big-headedness on my part, but um, I find it somewhat difficult to talk about bullshit for more than, you know, just a few minutes at a time without, like, couching that bullshit either in, in a, a more, you know, legitimate and intellectually stimulating premise or making that bullshit so bullshitty that the people who you're bullshitting with can't keep up with your bullshit. Because <laughs> um, that's something that I've, you know, that I pride myself on bringing practice in is bullshitting. I mean, half of what I'm saying is bullshit right now. Uh, but, but the goal, I mean, and this is something that I realized as early as high school. The goal is to get your bullshit so well cultivated and so well articulated and, and um, oriented so that um, it kind of breaks the confines of being bullshit and becomes something a little bit more legitimate and a little bit more grounded. Um, and that especially relates to writing essays <laughs> um, and the same such materials. Yeah. yeah. Has your family ever decided to try to make a music group with with everybody? And, so and so yeah, man. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, my mom doesn't play any instruments. Yeah, um, I noticed you didn't mention. Yeah, yeah. she she's uh, uh, she she writes. She's she's a writer. She um, uh, I mean, she works for a, for a nonprofit doing land conservation in Baltimore and Hereford counties. Um, but she writes a garden column. She's an avid gardener. Um, so I, I trace uh, a lot of my my you know, for lack of a better term, ironically, verbal aptitude uh, to, to her um, and the way that she would kind of talk with us growing up, um, you know, never baby talk or anything like that, or as far as, as far as my parents would, would, you know, let me, uh, would be, would clue me into, they, they didn't, they talked to us as though we were adults, um, which also contributed to my not really um, speaking that much until I was, I think, two and a half or three, um, which, and this is completely anecdotal, but I've talked with a few other people who have um, a few other adults whose children went through this who also spoke to their children as though they were adults. Um, their theory is that the child has so much in their head, you know, is learning words, learning uh, sentence structures. Um, one of the things that I focused on under my cognitive science major at Hopkins was, was the acquisition of language and language itself and, you know, how it's rendered in real time and how it's processed in, in various parts of the nervous system. Uh, they have so much going on in their head um, that they, they find themselves more... Um, Dedicating their their mental mental strength to comprehension rather than production, um, uh, which are you know the two facets of language. There's there's understanding the language that's being spoken to you, and then taking those understandings and generalizing them, and then producing your own your own sentences. Um, so so that might have been true for me. I don't know if I I don't know if my you know vocabulary was um, uh, you know above average for a six year old. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I, I don't think I have any recordings of myself speaking <laughs> at that time. Um, so, when we perform together as a group, it's mostly like my my father and and my brothers and I. Um, it's mostly in the same. Actually, I think every time that we've performed together, all of us, um, it's been at the fourth session family overnight at, at my my summer camp. Um, we play the chicken dance. And actually, actually, that's not true. There's only been one time when we've all been playing in an ensemble, and that was just last year. Um, normally, I lead the dance. So my, my older brother plays saxophone, my, my father plays accordion, and my younger brother plays uh, a snare drum and hi-hat. And, it, and it's a rockin' time. But and I, normally, I lead the dance, and I, you know, I do all the things, and then it speeds up gradually, and, and, and I lead that. 
Um, but last last session, I had my violin in the in the lodge behind me, so I ran over and I was like, I, I want to take part in this, so I so I joined on violin. So that was actually the only time that I've ever performed with all of the males in my family. Um, but uh, my dad has been playing accordion for 45 years. He, he's been playing since he was, well, I guess 43 years. He's been playing since he was 16. And, and he's been playing the same accordion. He never played in public until, um, let's say, 2006 or seven. So he never performed in public. And he, he gave it up for a while. He, he started playing again when he was 40. He's 58 now. So when he played for the first time, it was with my older brother. I think, I think my older brother played um, sa- uh, clar- clarinet. Yeah, he also plays clarinet. Uh, and then later on, when I, when I was 10, um, so this is 2007, I was playing violin for a year then. Um, we played uh, two songs. We played Eleanor Rigby and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds for, for the camp overnight. But yeah, and, and that pretty much sums it up and, and as far as my experience playing music with my family members goes. Um, I remember early on, I, I would play violin while my brother played clarinet and my dad accordion. Um, we would play like in the Hall of the Mountain King. I remember... I remember Having a lot of a lot of fun doing that, and and some other Beatles songs, but mostly for you know performances uh, at, at camp. I wonder if like a wedding, what kind of <laughs> like a family, family wedding? Yeah. Oh, oh, God like, forbid any of us get married. <laughs> Christ, yeah. It's yeah. cool. So I have um, a question. If you were on an island and sure. you had no music, yeah, okay, no, there's music how? everywhere. All sound is music, man. Got a pine tree and start yeah. knocking on it. Yeah, I was going to wonder how long would you go before you started making music on there? Oh, well, well, I, I get in my car, and if mm. I don't have a CD that I necessarily want to be listening yeah. to... No, I'm saying I'll, like, there's all, like you're on an island by yourself. Yeah, no, 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 but, but I'll sing. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I, I know a few songs that I continuously revisit, and I'll, yeah. and I'll say this. Um, last night, coming back from my, my mandolin orchestra uh, party, you know, I just played music. Music was in my head. Um, so I uh, uh, I sang Sacred Harp songs for for the entirety the entire hour long car drive from uh, from uh, Harford Road to uh, Northeast. But yeah, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be long. I would be singing, and I would I also make make up my own songs. Um, there was one particular one that I was singing for about the you know 15 minutes before I got uh, got back here to the point where I got back here, and and I always forget them. You know, that's that's the thing. There's so much material that could be saved for, for posterity that all sorts of people are generating. You know, I would love to have a recording from, you know, from the St. Thomas Church in Leipzig from, from you know, 1730 of Bach conducting one of his passions or at least, you know, a cantata, even a cantata that I don't like. You know, <laughs> just, just to see, you know, what tempos he takes, what types of, what types of uh, interpreta- interpretative uh, uh, decisions he makes. Um, but, but we don't have that. But there are a lot of things that I that I do on my own. You know, a lot of uh, statements that I make or, or or songs that I construe that 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 I wish I had some sort of recording of for posterity. But again, I'm, I'm I have kind of this abject fear of a microphone, which is ironic considering <laughs> that currently I'm speaking into two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to go there, but <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's end this uh, podcast with three compositions for a non-listener. To listen to before they die. The for a non-listener are. of classical music yes. or of sounds in general. So three compositions for a deaf person. <laughs> 433 by John Cage comes up. Yeah. Um, oh boy, that's a good question. Um, three. I mean, if I had a day to um, to think about this question, I would probably come up with different answers than the ones that I'm about to give. First one is is uh, Spemonalium by Thomas Tallis. I, I say this one in, instead of the the piece that is arguably I would rather listen to and arguably inspired this piece because it's it's slightly more accessible. It's only twelve minutes. 
Um, it's a motet for 40 independent voices. Um, so imagine a choir of 40 people, all with independent vocal parts, all moving around. Um, it climaxes on a bit, bit of dissonance that you literally never hear in Renaissance um, choral music. It was composed in, in probably the 1580s. Thomas Tallis was, well, probably actually earlier than that, Thomas Tallis, I believe, died in 1585. Um, it was inspired by a, a, a piece by an Italian, Alessandro Strigio, who um, uh, he wrote a, 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 a mass for 40 and 60 voices. Um, has a very long Italian name, which I, I can't pronounce or remember right now. So it, it's, it's, his, his mass is probably 35 minutes long, 40 minutes long. His was actually lost. Alessandro Strigio's mass was lost for 400 years. We, we knew that he composed a mass for 40 and 60 voices, didn't know what it sounded like or, or, or anything about it until it was found in 2007. Mm -hmm. so, so when it was found, a few people recorded it, and I have one recording um, that I continuously visit to, but we won't include that in three because because Spaminolium is is a little bit more um you know listenable because it's only twelve minutes long. Let's see, that's the first one. That's that's the Renaissance you know Renaissance bit, Renaissance choral music. Uh, Thomas Tallis was a teacher of William Byrd, who's uh, the second um, composition I played on reed organ was one of his was one of his tunes. Um, yeah, so that's that. I mean, I mean that's, that comes to the top of my head because I, I remember finding that piece for the first time and being absolutely enraptured by its, uh, by the timbres and by the by the feel of it. I mean, it's hard to limit it because there are you know compositions that are three minutes long and there are compositions that are five hours long. So I don't want to say a composition that's five hours long because that that doesn't really lend itself for for a non-listener. Spemanalium. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, uh, short, I mean, sh it also depends on the interpretation. There are some pieces that I definitely recommend for, for the interpretation, um, if not for the, for the piece itself. Um, God, this is, a, this is actually a lot harder than I, than I anticipated <laughs> it being. Um, I want to throw Bach in there. Um, specifically, some, some Bach that, that I don't think really gets the credit that it's necessarily deserved. Um, let's say BWV 67, uh, um, which is a cantata, uh, means stay in remembrance or hold in remembrance Jesus Christ. And that I recommend for its opening chorus, which I think is one of the best opening choruses of any Bach cantata. It, it, the, 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 the piece is essentially symmetrical. You know, it, it anchors itself around a central chorus, which I think is one of the best um, choruses. Uh, it's a, I mean, a hymn that that Bach composed, which actually he, he might not even even have composed it. He probably adapted it for for his own ensemble, because Bach was known to do that. Um, all the way stretching back to like hymns composed by Martin Luther. Bach, Bach was a Lutheran, and then and then it's uh, uh, it's bass um, solo with with a uh, uh, soprano chor chorus. So so the way that Carl Richter does it, and I think this is the first time that that name has has arrived on this. Oh, actually, no, it's the second, because I mentioned his Mass in B minor. Carl Richter uh, is one of the members of uh, what, I, what I like to think of as being the oldest tradition of Bach interpretation um, that, that arguably still exists. Carl Richter was um, educated by two individual Thomas Cantors. So Bach was appointed Thomas Cantor, which is the cantor, or the, the head of music of the, uh, the St. Thomas Church in, in Leipzig, in 1723. Um, he held that position until he died in 1750. Carl Richter was born in 1926. He was, he was educated by Karl Straub and Gunther Rahman, um, who were both Thomas Cantors. Uh, upon Rahman's death in 1955, Carl uh, Richter was offered the position, but he turned it down so that he could focus more on his, his own ensembles, which were the Münchener Bach Orchestra and, and Bach Corps. 
um, which were operating until his death, I believe in 1981. I think he was 55 when he, st- he died of a heart attack, which is all too early. You know? and, and that's the thing. He was, uh, uh, Richter's style of Bach interpretation was, was unlike, is unlike pretty much anything that exists nowadays. He would use massive choruses and massive orchestras, but he, he didn't interpret it in a romantic style, so to speak. Um, the rhythms were still very motoric. Um, the, the articulation was, was spot on. Um, and he accomplished this using, you know, I, I think I counted in one of the videos that, that he made of, of one of the Passions, um, uh, 120 chorus members, so 40 people or 30 people to a part, and then another a child's chorus of 40, 40 children. Um, and that's the St. Matthew Passion. So the, the reason why I say BWV 67, Holtem Gedichten, is using Christ, um, is because the I believe it's the fourth movement is a uh, is a bass solo with child's chorus accompaniment, and when the kids speak, the kids speak, man, it's it's something else. And then there's also um, Peter Schreier, who's who is Richter's uh, go-to tenor. The se- that's the second move, uh, movement of which I know all the words in German. Um, that's just a fun kind of like bouncy bouncy piece. So that's BWV 67. Let's see. That's so. That's two. I've I've gotten you know that maybe two hundred years between those. So I want to get one that's that's kind of unexpected. So I want to get away from the Baroque or Renaissance traditions. But the problem is, so many of the pieces of music that I listen to are so obscure that I don't think that anybody <laughs> would have any any success in actually finding them. Um, man, uh, I kind of want to delve into Sacred Harp. Actually, yeah, I think I'll do that. Um, the Easter Anthem. Just put in the, the words Easter Anthem into YouTube. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a group that does it, uh, Cork Sacred Harp. Uh, and they have, a, they have a recording of that piece from their second uh, annual Sacred Harp convention. They're out of Ireland. And this, this piece is stunning. It's, it's, I mean, it's in the Sacred Harp tradition. You've got soprano, alto, patona, bass. The, the leader of that um, rendition, though, really, really has his eye on the ball. Uh, for the duration of it, um, and it's an anthem, so it's not r- really simple. It's not just a hymn. It's got, um, you know, there's there's part of it where they're they're fuguing, um, there's part of it where they're you know they're, where they're all coming in individually uh, one after another, and that's probably the most modern piece that I have the most kind of spiritual weight attached to in terms of listening to it. Yeah, that's one of the pieces also that I know all the words of and regularly sing in the car. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so it looks like we have uh, some homework to do. Check them out. <laughs> Well, uh, that's going to end this episode of the podcast. We made it. I think this might be the record. An hour. Seriously. Yeah. Way past an hour and a half. That's pretty good. And I could. I mean, I could yeah. go go on. Um, and I probably sound more patronizing and more uh, more, more <laughs> verbose as I as I did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sure. It's good that you didn't make me drag out the accordion. <laughs> There's a there's Maybe. a joke actually uh, that I that I'd like to say about accordions. Okay. It's, it, it can be used also with violas or any other musical instrument if you have a particular disaffectation for players of those musical instruments. So there is a uh, there's an accordion player, a professional accordion player, and he uh, is playing a gig at a at like a bar one night, and he it's a relatively successful gig, and he you know makes some money, and he at the end of the night he puts his accordion in the backseat of his car and and drives his car home, and he parks it in the parking lot and uh, of his house. Uh, or rather the driveway, and he gets out of the car and he goes into um, uh, his house and he, and he falls asleep. Uh, in the morning, he wakes up and he walks outside to his car and he notices that there's a big hole in the, in the back window, the rear window, and he walks up to the hole and looks in and there's two accordions. <laughs> I was wondering how that was going to end. How that. <laughs> well, thank you, Jacob. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Everyone listening, Jacob Amidi, 
thanks very much for uh, joining, and we'll have to get you on again. And uh, be on the lookout for a new logo, hopefully coming soon, and intro music um, for the podcast on everything. So. <laughs>